Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. You're going to have to work super hard and maybe make less money, or maybe you're going to have your own business, but you're only going to make $2,000 a month as opposed to $10,000 a month in your previous job. And that's fine because you're going to actually be able to experience this way of, of working and traveling that very few people have been able to get access to. That was a clip from my interview today with remote work expert Liam Martin, and I wanted to have him on because remote work is not going anywhere anytime soon, as you know. The movement is only growing, and how can you take advantage of remote work, and how does that look for your life, incorporating remote work in with your travels? What are some of the things to consider, and what are some of the things you maybe haven't even thought of? And when you get into a dialogue with somebody who's been working remotely for 20 years, like Liam, somebody who co-founded a remote-first company that grew to eight figures with people in 43 different countries and no office, and somebody who just wrote a book called Running Remote, Master the Lessons from the World's Most Successful Remote Work Pioneers. He runs a conference all about uh, remote work. So he's really entrenched in, in remote work and has been for a long time. So there are, of course, lessons to be learned from an expert like this. And that's the intention here behind this conversation. We get into a lot of different topics and themes around living abroad, living a location-dependent lifestyle with remote work, being a digital nomad. He talks about some of his strategies to find long-term housing in different countries, why the need to feel productive can sometimes disconnect you from being present, the strategies that will help you buy back your time and prevent decision-making burnout, some of the top tips for managing employee experience as a remote employer, why travel will make you better at your job, the top three places to live as a remote worker, why not to quit your nine-to-five if you want to make a successful transition to the digital nomad or remote work lifestyle, why the great resignation is going to shift into the great migration and what that might mean to local communities around the world, and so much more. A lot to unpack around remote work, and we do it today. I know you're going to love this chat. Plus, I am going to share with you how to get the most out of an important and often overlooked part of the travel experience. And this is something I'm going through right now, something I'm pretty sure you've gone through before as well. So I wanted to share some thoughts around that. Plus, a shout out to a listener here who is saying yes to more travel and recognizing that maybe you're never 
totally ready. Maybe you'll never feel completely ready to take a gap year, take off for an extended period of time. She shares a bit about her story, and I want to say congrats to her. Of course, I'll leave you with a quote today and a lot more happening right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. First-time listeners, welcome to the community. So great to have you here. Am I the only one that puts stickers on their water bottles? That's still a thing. I was just taking some water here before recording, and I'm looking at all these stickers. They're almost like some of them are little travel mementos. I have one from the Mountain Sun, my favorite brew pub in Boulder, Colorado. Some of them are from friends. Anyway, if you have a fun sticker you want to share, you just want to get in touch and say hi, drop me a line. Jason at travel.com is my email, or you can leave me a voicemail even better. I got a couple fun ones last week that are coming on a future show. I love to feature the community here in this show. That's what it's all about. I make this show for you. It's a community-powered show, so I encourage you to get in touch, make some guest suggestions, uh, ask questions, uh, provide some helpful resources. Happy to share that stuff on the podcast with other listeners if I think that will benefit other people out there in the community. Speaking of the community, before we get into the interview, I do want to give a shout out to somebody who's saying yes to more travel. And I just want to remind you before we get into the interview, stick around on the back end if you want to hear a few tips on how to get the most out of what I think is an overlooked part of travel or part of taking a long break or a gap year, even if you're not uh, traveling, if it's not travel related. It's something I'm, I'm literally going through this exact second on this exact day. And I wanted to share some thoughts around that because it came up when I was doing a little journaling and I said, hey, I got to put this on the podcast. So stick around for that. Now, congratulations to Julia who dropped me an email saying yes to more travel. The subject header. Hey, Jason, been listening to the podcast for four years now, the entirety of my life in corporate America. Just wanted to say thanks. At times, it was the only thing that kept me sane while working a desk job in corporate America. I've traveled quite a bit, but have been scared to take the leap in full-time travel, even though I saved the money I wanted to save and did everything to prepare a year ago. I was always thinking that maybe if I saved more money, I would be more ready, and maybe I would have someone that would come along with me for longer than a few months if I kept waiting. I even ended up taking a job at a startup a few months ago, thinking that it would be better and less corporate than my old company. It wasn't. They also quickly realized that I wasn't a good fit and let me go about a month ago. I got an offer for a new position back at the company. I quit around the same time as they let me go, but turned it down to take a gap year. No more waiting. I am currently living in Los Angeles till my lease is up, then moving to the Grand Canyon for a few months to work there and starting a year of travel abroad in January. I can't wait, and I'm so excited that I finally took the leap. Smiley face. Bon voyage, Julia. So anyway... 
congrats, Julia. I like to publicly acknowledge these uh, these wins here on the podcast. And you know, this one brought up some interesting points around feeling like you are ready, right? Because it sounds like she hit her target goal for savings a year ago, like she said, uh, but kept thinking, well, maybe if I save more money, I'll be more ready and maybe I'll have somebody to go with me and all those things. So I thought part of uh, this shout out was just a little reminder for anybody listening that's thinking they're not quite ready for X, Y, or Z, whether it's a gap year, something travel related, maybe starting your own business, going back to school, whatever it is in your life. Uh, perhaps you can take a little inspiration from Julia and hear her enthusiasm for kind of admitting in some ways that, hey, you know, she probably was ready, even though she wasn't um, willing to sort of embrace that. So that mindset of, hey, maybe it's a good question to ask ourselves, do I have enough now to get going with the X, Y, or Z thing I want to get going with? You know, am I ever going to really feel ready? What would it take to feel ready? And if it does take something specific, perhaps identifying those things. But even when you do that, like Julia did, hitting her savings target, it it became a mindset issue, right? Feeling like, well, maybe I'll be more ready. And sometimes we just need to take that leap, do that thing, and understand that, hey, we're never really going to feel ready for this, (laughs) even when we're doing it. Even when we are ready, we're never probably going to feel ready. It's just our brains trying to protect us to do that thing where it stops us from doing the things we really maybe are meant to do or that we should do, but we're perhaps scared or having some fears for various reasons. So anyway, just wanted to use part of this shout out as a congratulations and also as a reminder for myself and anybody out there listening that may be struggling with being ready for something that's Maybe we have everything we need right now. And if we don't, let's see what it takes to get there. So just wanted to share some thoughts around that. Okay, now let's slip and slide into this interview all around uh, remote work, which is a huge topic, plenty to unpack here. And I'm glad I got to do it with a true expert in the field. You know, Liam is the founder of timedoctor.com. This is one of the world's leading time tracking softwares for remote teams. He also runs the Running Remote Conference, and he just wrote the Running Remote Book, which you can find at runningremotebook.com. We'll put all the various links in the show notes. Enjoy this conversation with Liam Martin, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. with uh, Liam Martin. Yes, that's true. Yes, that is true. (laughs) The co-founder of a remote first company that grew eight figures with people in 43 countries and no office. Super impressive. And I know you're the co-organizer of the Running Remote Conference as well. And you also have a book coming out, Running Remote, published by HarperCollins. Congratulations on that. So yeah, man, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast. I'm super excited to be on the Zero to Travel podcast. Thank you for having me. I think... uh, I would love to, to be able to talk about travel, but unfortunately, I haven't done that much of it over the last two and a half years, which has been super depressing. <laughs> but I did a ton of it before, uh, so we can talk about that too. Well, listen, man, I think travel is one of those things where when you get some travel uh, experiences under your belt, it, it kind of never never leaves you in many ways, right? So always always good opportunity to reflect on travel. Yeah, we were talking a bit, you, you have a young daughter, and I'm just wondering for you, 
I don't know how it was for you, but for me, as soon as my first daughter was born, almost immediately my relationship with my businesses and sort of how to how I felt about them changed, you know? Like I still cared just as much about the people I was trying to impact, but as far as the personal investment I had as an entrepreneur, I was just kind of like, uh, you know, well, it's not that important <laughs> in many ways. I don't know. That's not everybody's experience. I'm just curious as somebody who's done a lot, started a, a huge company, you've, you've done a lot in the entrepreneurial space. Yeah. How, how did that change your relationship to work, if at all? So I knew that that change was probably going to come, unfortunately, about, well, fortunately or unfortunately. It's almost like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like my brain has been reprogrammed and it took me about six months before all of those effects really took effect. Before Stella was born, I was um, I was pretty focused on work. My wife is also an entrepreneur as well. So we were really focused on our individual businesses. And then when when my daughter was born, the first three months was shock of just like, there's this human animal that exists in your space and you have to, you're, you're legally responsible to take care of this, this thing. Um, but then once she started smiling at me, everything just kind of went out the window and I was like, wow, okay, there's feedback here. And this, this, this person looks just like me. And, uh, it was a really exciting time for me. And I started spending way more time with my daughter than on the business. Like I would probably say if I could work just on my on my children, I would probably just work on children as opposed to the business. But I know that that wouldn't serve me long term in the direction that I really want to go in my life. So um, I would I probably would not have started a business with children. And I'm really happy that I was able to start a business and build a few businesses before having children, because then that really gave me the framework to be able to say, I know, I know, I now know I can do this and I can do this in an environment in which uh, it's relatively safe. But, you know, for me, uh, because I've removed a lot of risk with the businesses that I've built. So I've got enough cash that like, if I wanted to just become a full-time parent, I could. Um, but it's, uh, it's a really interesting phenomenon. It just, you know, your kid becomes the first priority. Whereas like a year before she was born, I would have thought, oh, that would have never been possible. Nothing would have prioritized the business. Yeah. Well, priorities change over time for everybody, of course. And that's like a big mover and shaker of that, right? Having children. But another one, of course, I think for a lot of people has been the freedom to work remotely, which we're going to talk about today, which was essentially forced upon companies to do during COVID and the pandemic, as we all know. And and a lot of them weren't necessarily comfortable with that. I feel like some of them are now saying, hey, oh, this is pretty cool. What was I afraid of in the first place? People are happier. You know, I don't have to pay for office space, whatever. I think feel feel like some people just get it probably quicker than others. And others are just like, yep, get your butts back into the office right now. So um, I do want to kind of talk about all that in the future of, of remote work, but I'm just, I want to start with travel and I'm wondering what role, if any travel played for you in your life when you were growing up. Oof. Uh, I didn't do much travel actually while I was growing up. Um, 
so like we traveled within Canada, which is where I'm from. I'm Canadian, but um, not that much international travel. I really kind of fell into, I got the travel bug in my early 20s, right after undergrad. And I got to tell you, probably the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. What one thing I will be doing with my daughter is getting her to travel on a regular basis. So there's a, um, there's this philosophy towards parenting. It's been thrown around inside of entrepreneurial circles for the last couple of years where every single year you choose to go to a place with your child, either on their birthday or maybe, uh, you know, on, in between their on their six month birthday, as an example, and you just say, choose a spot on the map and we'll go there. And ideally, I would like them to actually not go to, you know, places like Disney World or something like that. I want to go somewhere that's a little bit difficult to be able to get into. So they learn the lessons that that traveling to difficult places actually gives you. And uh, yeah, I'm very, I, I caught the travel bug probably around 2022 and then really kind of ratcheted it up in my mid 20s as I was able to travel with the business. And I spent about six months a year when it's not COVID uh, traveling. So usually around uh, January 5th, right after New Year's, we leave because Canada is ridiculously cold and we come back around April or May. Okay. And you've spent time in places as sort of living a quasi-digital nomad lifestyle, it sounds like for some months anyway. Yeah, I would call myself a slow nomad. Uh, so a slow mad. Yeah, slow mad. So <laughs> about three months per location. That's generally what I want to be able to do. So you land in the area, get yourself a nomad kind of hostel hotel. Um, Selena's are really good. I've full disclosure. <laughs> they have sponsored our conference before, but they are really good. And they, you can set up there. They have co-working spaces associated with them. So you land in that area, you get yourself a room. We get a private room, but a hundred bucks a night, stay there for a couple days. And then from that point, you start to reach out to all the Airbnbs that were in that area. And you talk to them in person, you see the places and you say, okay, let's negotiate like a three month lease um, for some of these properties. And you can, you can usually get in much cheaper than if you directly uh, ran it through Airbnb. And uh, we stay there for about three months. And we usually just, we do work like we do our nine to five, like anybody else. But then at night, we're able to interact with a completely different culture, which is super cool. Hmm. Has there been one consistent strategy you've used to get good deals on those types of places? Yes. Well, the biggest one is don't directly interact with Airbnb. Um, use it as like a filtering process. So like identify all the properties that you want to go and check out. Um, about 50% of the time we'll end up booking an Airbnb directly. So we'll go and we'll check out the place and then we'll negotiate with the person um, off the books effectively. But yeah, so we come in, we negotiate with those Airbnbs. We'll work with them or we'll, we'll usually be able to negotiate something about 20% cheaper than if you bought directly through Airbnb, that's about 50% of cases. The other 50% of cases, you usually are just going to that nomad hostel. And there's actually a whole bunch of properties that people know about in the area that uh, you can just directly talk to and negotiate with. And so those are great. Another kind of 10% will be um, 
like friends of a friend that we meet there and they'll say, oh yeah, my buddy has a property um, that he's not using. And then we go and check that out and, and book there. The key for me is I think that the future of nomadism will be rich, dumb nomads, not the regular nomads that have existed for the last 10 years. And that's kind of the way that I was traveling. So I'll get like, um, we'll get like a four bedroom house with a, you know, with a housekeeper or something like that. Something incredibly comfortable because in a lot of these countries, you can actually get a four bedroom house with a housekeeper for the cost of like a one bedroom place in San Francisco. So we'll book those places out and uh, make sure that we just have no problems with regards to logistics or food preparation or transportation, all that kind of stuff, because you can't afford it in these countries. Yeah. And it gives you more time to kind of focus on on the business. But this is one of the conundrums that I wanted to ask you about. You know, should should we really be productive all the time? Like, isn't just that need to feel productive all the time detrimental in some ways? Like some of the some of those tasks, like cooking food and all, I get outsourcing that. I'm using air quotes, but it's also a very human thing to do, and a, and a very sort of kind of present moment daily life type of thing. So it's cool to like offload all that if you need more time, but like doing that for months at a time, I feel like you can get disconnected with some of the, the essential things that life is all about. And I'm, you know, I, I agree with you. Uh, (laughs) I'm one of the most unproductive people on the face of the planet and I force myself into productivity. So I have a lot of these kind of like if then statements in my life, uh, as an example, I have this black t-shirt, which I'm holding up to myself. It's a Calvin Klein, um, Calvin Klein t-shirt. You can actually buy them directly. I buy them directly from the manufacturer. And, um, so I just bypass Calvin Klein, but it's exactly the same t-shirt for like two bucks a t-shirt. And I distribute them everywhere on planet earth along with Matt and Bo jeans. And, uh, if we want to get too crazy, I also get, uh, these, I can't remember the name of the underwear, but they've got like a horse on it. They're pretty nice. And I put those everywhere um, that I'm going to be on a regular basis. So I have some at like my co-founder's place in Sydney. I have some in uh, Ubud in Bali where I spend a lot of time. I have some in Barcelona. I have some in Tulum in Turks and Caicos uh, where we have some properties in Istanbul where I have a property and here in Montreal. And it just allows me to be able to basically carry like travel on or carry on the entire time. Cause I don't have to carry clothes anywhere wherever you can like buy back some of your time, I think is actually a really valuable thing to do. And then once you've purchased that time back, it's up to you to do what you want with it. So do you want to actually sit down and, you know, get really good at, um, smoking barbecue, which I really like to do, right? It would be a complete waste of time. But what that allows me to do is just kind of decompress from all of my work requirements. So to me, when you think about buying time, I think you should buy time on things that are work and anything that you can't distinguish between work and play, any activity where it's like, man, am I playing or am I working? That's what you should be really spending your time on because that's what you really love to do. Uh, the stuff where it's like, wow, this is definitely work. Purchase that back. Um, money is 
one of the most powerful tools to be able to, you know, effectively extend your life because you're able to get much more beautiful experiences by doing things like um, my lentil soup uh, that I eat every, every um, lunch. I have lentil soup and I have like uh, cut vegetables. Um, I have that every lunch, pretty much every day of my life. And it's just all systematized. I know exactly the nutrient components inside of it. I know that it's going to be generally healthy for me. I do that every single day. And then that allows me to be able to spend, you know, an hour working on dinner at night. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally the opposite. I'm like, like thinking about eating the same thing every day for lunch would drive me crazy. <laughs> you know, it's so what it does for me is I'm not it criticizing me, it. It's just a different yeah, yeah. way. It's just a, a, you know, everybody's different and that's what makes sure. it more beautiful. You know, it allows me more time to be able to focus on what I really want to do by removing a lot of decisions throughout my day. Uh, I don't, th- there's a couple studies kind of floating around talking about how if you make a decision as to what to wear versus like, should you invade Ukraine or Russia, right? Like that has the same weight as a decision. It means it requires the same amount of brain power and you only have a certain amount of decisions throughout your day before you get burned out. So there is some theories that suggest that you should remove as many unimportant decisions from your day. So you have more energy for important decisions throughout the day. But I don't know how true that is. um, But I do know for me, delegating a lot of that, those small decisions throughout my day allows me to focus on what I I really want to spend a lot of time on. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, We mentioned the word burnout there in terms of decision making. And I know in 2020, just from watching one of your videos on YouTube, you said that you you kind of experienced this remote work burnout situation. I don't think you're alone, certainly in that. I think it's a big adjustment to work remotely. And I'm, I've am i been doing it for years, but if you're not used to it and then you're thrown into that and it's not your bag, baby, or whatever, even if it is, there's, there's a fine line between working remotely and just working all the time because the... I feel I feel like the subconscious effects of you know your certain spaces in your home now being associated with as workspaces as well and I you know I don't know all the psychology behind it and there's uh, probably millions of studies that are being made right now around this in real time that are going to come out but what it comes down to is it's just yeah there's a fundamental separation that exists or at least used to exist more before smartphones I should say between the office and home, right? Or if you're a if you're a plumber, you go and you fix the toilets or the sinks or whatever and then you come home and you're off because you can't do anything else. And now you have your toolbox with you all the time in your head. So you know, talk about that experience with burnout. I know you shared some some tips for fixing that, at least uh, your experience in fixing it for yourself, but I, I think this is topical because Whoever's listening to this has probably been working remotely in some way, shape, or form, or will be in the future if you haven't been. And the burnout thing is real. I mean, it, it can sneak up on you. So yeah, just share your experience with that. Sure. Well, I'm, first off, just to kind of give you the context of what happened, no one really recognizes how big of a shift that was. In uh, February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. By March, 45% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. 
That's the biggest shift in work since the Industrial Revolution. But the Industrial Revolution took 80 years, and we did that in March. So a complete shift of how work existed. And inside of that, unfortunately, and one of the reasons why I really spent the last year and a half working on this book is there were so many people that reached out to me. They were like, hey, how do I do this remote work thing? You know, I was getting like G20 governments that were calling me saying, hey, we've 550,000 employees have gone remote last week. What do we do next? You know, and I was like, well, I have no idea because I don't have a company anywhere near your size. And they said, listen, no one has this experience. Um, and you're one of the first people that would take our call. So it was a really kind of scary time. And a big thing in kind of encapsulated inside of that is to your point, talking about working from home, turning into living at work. And this is one of those things that we need to really create clear divisions for. So I'm currently in my office. I have my laptop. I have all of my you know work equipment. Um, but outside of my office, I have my iPad and my smartphone. Uh, my smartphone and my iPad do not have any work tools on them. They are purely for my enjoyment. My work tools exist on my laptop. That's where I work. And I create a very clear division. So if I got a notification on Facebook, as an example, number one, I don't have any notifications on any of my devices because they're massive distractions towards your focus. But more importantly, I don't use Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or anything like that on any of my work devices. So this is focused on work. And then when I leave my office, that's when I interact with those kind of more fun social interaction applications. I don't even bring my iPad or my phone into my office uh, because I want to create a very, very clear division between my social space and my workspace. And the issue that, you know, you think that this is kind of a small issue, but this really does infect and cross contaminate those, both of those environments where I'll come down from my office and uh, I have a, a buddy of mine that has a really good methodology for this. He has like a, a silver dollar that he keeps in his pocket as a good luck charm. And when he has the silver uh, silver dollar in his pocket, he's at work. And when he puts it down, he's not. So again, it's very Pavlovian, but just to be able to create that differentiation where I'm not going to go downstairs and kind of whine at my wife talking about how the business is not going very well and how, you know, Jason from HR is, is pissing me off. Um, that's not, that doesn't create a really positive work relationship and social relationship because it's infecting your social reality. Um, it's just too close. So you need to be able to really divide those two things. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, there's a, a, a book called the second climb. Can't remember the name of the author, but really good book on um, EMTs and police officers talking about how they divide what they see at work from their social lives. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of remote workers are actually going to have to adopt this uh, because they're just cross-contaminating those two environments. And it's creating a lot of degradation and a lot of, uh, I mean, the, the rate of like um, of uh, psychology and um uh, couples therapy has gone through the roof. And I think it's actually because not because we're too close together, not because we're working from home, but because 
we're actually bringing that negativity into our social spheres. Right. No, that makes sense. I haven't thought of it that way. You can think like, yeah, your spouse or your partner shouldn't be the the person at the water cooler that you're complaining with and commiserating with over over what's wrong all the time, right? I mean, that could be one of the big reasons. And I, I like the term cross-contaminate. I actually use it a couple times and I hadn't thought of it that way. And, you know, there's, of course, you think, well, contamination, cross-contamination, that's like a negative thing, right? Maybe we should have a negative term like that where it's like, hey, you know, I don't want to cross-contaminate these this work private life thing because it's going to mess up the mojo of my life, however you want to think of it. I, I, I like that line of thinking. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. You mentioned the EMT police book and yeah, I mean, that profession... That, that's always been something I've been curious about. How do you not take that home with you? And I think that was a good example of taking uh, maybe a mindset or a strategy from a completely unrelated field and adopting it to uh, something that's uh, current in your life, like remote work, right? So we, we can take some of the strategies that police, uh, police people use or EMTs and maybe implement them in, in a certain way. I'm just wondering for you, has there been or have there been any other you know, say strategies or just mindsets or, or things that you've brought into your work or your life that have come from a completely different 
sphere and and you've been able to kind of see, oh, wow, this really works in this thing. You know, I, I feel like that's one of the beautiful things about life that makes everybody's work unique is they have their unique set of background and influences. And then you can bring certain things that are completely seemingly unrelated and integrate them into, you know, work or creative work or, or different things. And I, I find that to be one of the most unique parts about just what individuals can create and produce, right? Mm. It's, it's coming from a lot of different places. <laughs> For sure. Um, first thing that comes to mind is I used to be a competitive pair skater. So I was the guy that lifted the girls, um, like uh, the Sally and Peltier um, figure skater, figure skating troupe, like a, a, a duo. And I did it pretty competitively. I ended up um, competing at national championships, international competitions, ended up around top 20 in the world for my best year. And it required a significant amount of discipline. Um, and I absolutely believe that that discipline is, gave me success in business without that discipline. I would not have been able to get through all of the crap that you have to get through with building a business in order to make it successful. I would have given up much, much earlier in the process. And, um, that's a one biggest thing that, uh, Y Combinator, which is probably arguably the most successful accelerator incubator in the world. So they basically take a whole bunch of companies at a very small state. So just like you basically have an idea or maybe, maybe you've made a little bit of money and they give them, I think about a hundred grand and they give them three months and then they accelerate them. Like they just bring all of the best people that they can to be able to kind of infuse that business. And they take a small amount of equity back. I think it's like five to 10% or something like that. And the biggest thing that they've identified as a success factor for companies is the founders of those companies do not give up even when all indications suggest that they should. So uh, the biggest one that one of the biggest ones that they built was Airbnb, going back to Airbnb again. And um, they had this business that had been running, I think, for like three or four years and it wasn't successful. Like Airbnb just wasn't working because people were like, okay, so I'm going to let someone in my house. That's just not going to roll for me. Like it, it, the sharing economy didn't exist at that point. And they ended up actually selling, um, they got oh, Barack Obama. They were working on the Barack Obama campaign and they were able to sell this thing called Obama O's. So they came up with a cereal called Obama O's and they started selling that and they got enough money to be able to continue on with their Airbnb business. Like just these little hustles that they were doing left, right and center. And um, then with the accelerator, they came in and they said, oh, well, we're not getting any traction in San Francisco where they were, but we are getting traction in New York. And the guys that were running Y Combinator said, okay, well then go to New York. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're planning on going to New York, you know, after the accelerator is over. He said, no, go to New York today. And they went to New York that day and they, they went around Manhattan and they started identifying people that wanted to rent houses that were putting them up on Craigslist. And they said, hey, we'll come in and we'll photograph your house which like would not scale, right? Like 
Obviously, you can't scale that process with hundreds of thousands of properties over planet Earth. But then they said, okay, yeah, so let's start. Let's start doing that. And it was just this mindset of like, we're not going to fail. We're going to succeed no matter what. That's the piece that skating gave me, effectively just sport in general and discipline gave me in order to succeed in business. That's why for us, actually, whenever um, I look to hire someone, I look at their CV and I figure out, have they done competitive sports? Have they served in the military? Or have they worked a retail job? If they have not done at least one of those three things, then we don't hire them because uh, those are shitty jobs. <laughs> and you want to be able to make sure that you have someone who's willing to sit through difficult times in their lives in order to get to where they need to go. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen Blades of Glory, by the way? Isn't that a, isn't that a, I have, isn't that, uh, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool. And I think that's the perfect example because yeah, on the surface you could be like, well, what does, you know, competitive skating have to do with anything that you're doing? But obviously you're, you're attributing a lot of your success to that. It's a great example. So the, the idea that remote work is the future is even on your about page on Twitter, you say remote work is the future. The office is dead. How fast will that future be here? I mean, you could argue that it is now, but there are. It's pretty much here now. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing that I think is really counterintuitive for a lot of people when they think about COVID and, and the office is 10% of the U S workforce right now is working at home due to COVID. So 90% are choosing to work remotely as opposed to being forced to work remotely due to a virus. And we're probably sitting at around 30-ish percent of the US workforce working remotely. And again, that's a huge jump from 4% of where it was, but we're actually now counterintuitively seeing that rate pop back up. So we've effectively, we went from 4% to 45%. We've now dropped down to 30% and we're starting to see that number creep back up. So I would probably project that by 2027, we'll be over 50% of the US workforce working remotely and mass adoption, like the salinity point for remote work is probably about 65 to 70%. So we're almost, you know, at 45%, we were not that far away from having that salinity point where we're not going to be able to actually have anyone else work remotely. Another really interesting fact that I always love to be able to point out on uh, podcasts like this is what percentage of people over $100,000 per year do you think are currently working remotely? Is this a trivia question that I should answer or try to answer? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Percentage of people that are making over $100,000 a year that are working remotely. I would imagine... I don't know because there are a, there's the whole technology industry, but then there's also you know all the basic services that that people. Your plumber need. makes more than a hundred grand, probably. Yeah, right. And but that doesn't mean that they don't work remotely because there are ways to set up physical businesses to be run remotely. So that's true too. You know, if you're just managing them, I don't know. Uh, I'll say twelve percent, seventy-five percent. Gosh, 75% of people that make more than hundred grand work remotely. And so there's also a huge division between rich and poor 
Um, so if you have the capability to be able to work remotely, you generally are going to be making more money than people that don't have that capability. And as I think we're going to see the vast majority of those jobs, you know, move into that remote realm, um, you're going to see a complete shift in, you know, like the good jobs are going to be remote um, and the bad jobs are not. And so I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that that we've seen. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is, and this is obvious, but younger workers do not want to work remotely as often as more tenured employees because they want that mentorship and interaction effect. But I also think this comes actually down to another issue, which we haven't really addressed as of yet. And that's actually the reason why I wrote the book is I studied all of these remote first companies that were remote before the pandemic. And they were like, you know, billion dollar companies, uh, $10 billion companies. And the one single thing that they all had in common that no one else has in common is what I call asynchronous management, which is a counterintuitive concept. It's the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them. So we have team members in 43 different countries all over the world. I probably spend two to three hours a week on Zoom with the entire team. Um, we minimize the amount of kind of video time, um, synchronous time effectively, in-person, video, audio. We try to minimize all of those things and we try to optimize the management of the organization to the platform itself, the project management systems, the technology stacks that we have outside of the actual people. So most of these people can actually work on the problems of the business as opposed to being disrupted and uh, bugged by their managers. So it's, it's a very... It's a very counterintuitive way to be able to run a business, but I will tell you that the most successful businesses that are remote right now, uh, and the ones that are all going IPO, you know, IPOing at like twenty billion, hundred. The, the biggest one is uh, Coinbase. They just IPOed last year at one hundred and forty-one billion, entered number eighty-nine in the S and P five hundred, and for the first time in the history of the SEC, they've been able to state that their headquarters is nowhere because they said anything else would be a lie. Uh, because they're a completely remote organization. And I think we're going to see these companies pro proliferate. And the big thing that a lot of people are stressed out about is, again, turning working from home into living at work. It's eight-hour Zoom calls uh, at your computer. Real remote work has very little to do with Zoom calls and, you know, calls at three o'clock in the morning, um, instant messages on your phone saying, hey, can you please fix this at... 10 p.m. at night, that's not really remote work. It's asynchronous management. Hmm. So what is your, what do your say one to three biggest tips around that style of management that can keep people engaged, keep people motivated and working without all the sync activities? Well, the thing that's interesting is um, whenever you look at like people always talk about remote work culture and where that is and how that, how, how you're supposed to actually develop that. The funny thing is that remote first companies were really focused on the work and not necessarily the people that produce that work. So at least for us, 
remote work culture is about the mission that these companies have. So our mission as a company is we want to help proliferate the transition of the world towards remote work. So we're focused on transitioning the world towards remote work. Um, everything and anything kind of connected to that we do. So that's why we would write a book as an example on the subject, because it helps with that core mission. A lot of other people see culture as like, hey, you know, we have a ball pit in our office and, you know, you get um, you get pizza on Thursdays and you get a cake on your birthday. Uh, we don't really do any of that kind of stuff because I don't think that actually kind of connects to the core culture of what we're all about. It's, again, indistinguishing between work and play is the critical piece. If you think that you're doing something that you really love and you can't really tell whether or not you're working or you're playing, that's the magic that really helps companies become incredibly loyal um, to that process. But to your point, three overarching concepts is uh, deliberate communication, democratized workflows, and detailed metrics. So everything inside of companies that are asynchronous is really deliberate in our forms of communication, we write everything down, we document it. Then once we've actually documented all that stuff, we implement into democratized workflows, which is everything is digitized and recorded. So you can actually have an organization that um, if I were to throw you into the company and I could say, hey, Jason, what happened two years ago? Uh, inside of the company, you could literally go back two years and you could see everything that occurred on our project management systems and our processes and all that kind of stuff uh, to be able to figure out how we came to that particular conclusion. And then the third thing is detailed metrics. So everything that we do can basically be boiled down to quantitative metrics and the delivery of those metrics. So we have this concept called radical transparency, which just basically allows for everyone to have the same informational advantage as the CEO of the company, because we document all that stuff, and then we give it to everyone inside of the organization. So everyone can actually decide, hey, yeah, what are the decisions that are currently being made in the business? I can have a voice because I have just as much information as the CEO of the company. That's refreshing. Right. <laughs> it's scary. Uh, so a lot of people that I talk to that run businesses, they're like, oh, man, I couldn't give all of my people access to the P&L as an example. And um, I would suggest that they try it because <laughs> it's not too hard. And um, we have some of the best employee reviews of any organization that we've documented and most asynchronous remote organizations they have what's called employee net promoter score, which is, you don't really necessarily need to know how it works, but basically it just measures how happy employees are inside of a company. And the average EMPS score in a remote asynchronous company is 70. And the average EMPS in the United States is 36. So people are much happier inside of remote asynchronous companies. And the number one reasons that they give is autonomy to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. So I work whenever I want. I basically just get my metrics in because that's the only thing that I'm really accountable towards is making sure that my metrics are good. And then also radical transparency, um, the ability to be able to see what the heck is going on and actually give my two cents into this. And it makes perfect sense, by the way, if you're really focused on a mission, because if everyone's super excited about transitioning the world towards remote work, and they're you know they're cultishly excited about that particular concept, they want to learn as much as humanly possible about the company because they want to be able to help it grow. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, it was always one of the big 
major faults of the nine to five, if you want to call it status quo type of job is not everybody is productive from nine to five. (laughs) Some people want to work different hours, right? Or they're like, Hey, I'm really super creative in the morning. And then, I mean, that's, I, I know my peak creative hours for myself are generally between 10 and three, right? 10 and two. So I like to do interviews then. I feel awake. I feel engaged. I feel like I can dive into certain creative projects, whether it's prepping for an interview, doing an interview, writing, whatever. And then the admin stuff can be later. I think it's important for people to identify those peak hours. I'm not sure if you structure your workday that way or... I I do. So it, like as an example, I do... Um the video project that I've been working on for the, like the past two years, which is this YouTube channel uh, where you saw that video about my burnout. I batch that into Friday afternoons because it's just probably the most creative time of my week where I can really kind of get those ideas onto a page, put them on the teleprompter and then uh, talk about them. But when we look at computer programmers, as an example, developers, they have almost exactly the same workflow as creative writers. And most anyone that thinks about creative activity, uh, if you read, um, not Orson Welles, um, man, I can't remember his name right now. He's one of the most archetypal, iconic US writers. Anyways, a lot of writers will have like a writing dome or a writing hut or like a little kind of place that they go to, to be able to write where they remove a lot of distractions. And computer programmers actually work exactly the same way. And it's funny because the vast majority of companies that are getting people to be able to program software, it's like, oh yeah, okay, you got to do your nine to five. That's not the way they work. Uh, They actually work exactly the same way as creative writers. So they need to get into a flow state or what my friend Cal Newport calls deep work. So they need to have everything at their disposal in order to not be distracted, to solve the difficult problem, to break through that barrier and get into that flow state that everyone really, you know, that's when you're humming. And once you're in a flow state, absolutely do not break it for anything. Like try to keep that sucker going as long as possible, because once it shuts down, then your body actually needs to, and your mind needs to relax and you need to actually do something different. So maybe, you know, your most creative time is from 9 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning. That's fine. In our company, then that's when you should be working. Uh, You shouldn't be working the 9 to 5 as long as you get your metrics in, right? We have quantifiable longitudinal metrics. Everyone is responsible for at least one. You choose it in conjunction with your manager, which we really call leaders because there aren't many managers inside of our organization, because everyone has the autonomy to be able to do whatever the heck they want to do. And then you just execute on it. Uh, And however you want to execute on it is up to you. However, if you do it better than everyone else, we'd actually like to be able to figure out how you do it so that we can teach others. Hmm. The knowledge sharing is key, right? I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a podcast that I was on, uh, man, like two or three weeks ago, we were talking about this guy, that uh, there's this phenomenon now of people working like two to three jobs when they're working remotely because they can, right? Because they're just like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm working three jobs. And there, there's a there's a subreddit on uh, 
the $700,000 subreddit, which is these people are trying to get to $700,000 a year working remotely, but they have to work multiple jobs in order to be able to do that. So they're effectively running their own businesses in a, in a way, right? You have to be able to automate things to to work three jobs successfully, I'd feel. For sure. But the thing that this guy was talking about, and he was a very corporate, corporate guy in this podcast, was like, isn't this horrible? And I would say, I'd want to give that person a gold star. I would want to figure out like, how did you figure this out? And can you teach me how to do that? And can you also teach everyone in our company how to do that so we can optimize the productivity of the entire organization, right? Like that's the reality is just kind of having this, and it, it ties back to radical transparency, which is how are we actually just all coming together to be able to build, it, it, and it comes back to the core mission of what the heck you're doing, right? If you don't like what you're doing at work, well, of course you're going to work two or three jobs and you're going to kind of like minimize the amount of work that you need to do for the job that you don't want to do. And you're going to try to maximize the amount of time for things that you do want to do. But if we just really focus on saying, well, all right, you're aligned towards the mission, right? Yes. Perfect. What would you like to do? Um, here are the jobs that we currently have available or the tasks that we currently have available inside of this organization. Uh, what would you be able to, what can you work on that's really going to drive you and you're going to be passionate about that's the core piece that almost everyone misses in that nine to five, you know, living at work type of mindset um, when they're working remotely. And it's the single most important thing that I think that everyone needs to realize when they are thinking about remote work. Because really, during the pandemic, we worked from, we started at working in an office, and then we went to working from home. And that's not actually remote work. Remote work is you could work at home, you could work in an office, you could work at a co-working space, you can work at a coffee shop, you can work on a beach in Bali. I highly suggest you don't do that. However, I tried that one afternoon. It was the only time I decided to work on a beach because I thought, okay, I've got to do this at least once. And I got a bunch of sand in my laptop, cost me like 500 bucks to fix it. But you can do whatever the heck you want, just as long as you actually get your numbers in and you're productive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want autonomy? when it comes to your work. I don't know anybody say, I don't want autonomy. Maybe, you know, I, I understand what you're saying with certain people wanting to have the mentorship and the in-person. There is something to that. I mean, you do, you don't gain everything from remote work. You also lose certain things. And I mean, that's just the nature of life, right? You can't get every, there's no perfect solution to anything. You know, it, it can be very much based on your personality, how you like to work. Sometimes that autonomy can be scary for people, right? And then maybe certain organizations or jobs, it's just not the fit for them. And that's okay. I think it's, a, you know, as you just have to recognize who you are and kind of what you value and how you like to work and try to slot yourself in to a place or start a thing that kind of works with all that as much yes. as possible. <laughs> I would say, however, when you're thinking about travel specifically, I mean, remote work is the hack to be able to allow you to be able to travel while still making money. Um, it's probably the single most important thing that I think anyone that's thinking about becoming nomadic and regardless of, you know, your thoughts on digital nomadism and all that kind of stuff, um, it just opens up the world to you. And we encourage 
all of our staff members to be nomadic if they wish to be. So again, we're just measuring people by their metrics, right? Like, what did you do for the company? Where are, you know, what are your targets? Did you meet those targets? Did you not meet those targets? Um, if you want to do that in Tulum, I wouldn't suggest Tulum, by the way. It's not very nice. But if you want to do that in Tulum, you can do that. I would suggest maybe Istanbul or something like that. You know, like really cool or Cairo, actually. I just spent, uh, before the pandemic, we spent three months in Cairo. And uh, it's a little sketchy, but actually once you learn the rules, it's one of the most beautiful cities and environments I've ever been to in my entire life. And it's just so cool to be able to be able to work a nine to five and then interact with a culture that's so so polar opposite from everything that I've experienced here in Canada. And I think every single time I'm able to do that, I become a more interesting person, which makes me a better worker, a better, um, a better partner, a better parent. And yeah, like travel is such a fantastic gift. And I'm so excited over the next couple of years, because I think there's going to be so many people that will start to truly experience travel, not the all-inclusive Cancun, you know, one week <laughs> trip, they're going to actually be able to do stuff that's really going to make them think and pause about where they are in the world in comparison to everyone else. Yeah, it's a great point, especially, you know, if you're, if you have the ability to set up camp for months at a time in a place, you are going to get to know it in a different way than you would if you were just passing through, right? At some point, the rose-colored glasses come off and, and you start to see and be a part of really a community that is that is in a different place. <laughs> and well, isn't, a, that, isn't that the fun part though? Yeah, absolutely. To me, I, you know, just going back to Cairo, um, I had a couple friends of mine actually that I was able to meet up with in Cairo and they kind of taught me the ropes of what you do and what you don't do and how you interact with people. Um, if you've ever tried to cross to rear square as an example, it's terrifying. None of the cars stop. Everyone just is going. And then you have to kind of figure out, it's like, kind of like a game of like Frogger. Um, and you have to move across this 10 lane highway. I remember just looking at that for like two days thinking, how am I going to get to the other side of the street? Nothing ever stops. Oh, well, no one does that. They just kind of cross the street. Once you get all of that into you, I think you come back changed and you come back changed for the better. We're currently, I mean, and I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but we're currently experiencing a serious conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And I have people that work for me in both countries. Um, so it's personally directly impacted uh, me and, and our companies that we run. And I think the secret to world peace is if you could have taken those uh, 40 million Ukrainians and you could have had them have dinner with 40 million Russians, just one dinner, you know, go to Moscow, go to sit down, have dinner, have one meal with them. I think you could immediately, uh, come to a solution to that conflict because at the end of the day, everyone is Everyone are just people. Everyone just wants to have a peaceful, happy lifestyle. They want to be able to parent their children. Uh, they want to be able to get by. They want to be able to have enough food to eat and a roof over their head. And I think travel provides that lesson to everybody. And unfortunately, 
when you disconnect people from each other and they're in these kind of silos, um, they, they just can't, they can't get that type of feedback that I've been able to get. And I've been doing constantly since my mid twenties. And I think that that makes me a much more, um, multifaceted individual. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't have access to that because they're stuck in an office <laughs> from nine to five. So I'm so excited about remote work, empowering them to be able to kind of learn those lessons. Let's take a brief pause. We'll be right back. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and <laughs> immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. couple last questions. The best cities around the world for working remotely. You, I know you've been to some of the popular destinations like Bali, Estonia, Georgia, Barbados, Croatia. Can you share just a few quick hits on, on maybe some of your highlights for best places, cities to work uh, remotely sure. and so why? Remote workers are different from digital nomads. So if you're traveling and you're working, um, it's a different category. For remote workers, probably the top three would be Sydney, um, Montreal, ironically. Uh, and there was a big study that was done on like government stability and like crime rates and all this kind of stuff. So it was Sydney, Montreal, um, Toronto, ironically, I think that was number three. And then a uh, Boulder is in the top five as well. Fantastic spot to be able to work long-term, but digital nomadism, which is probably the one that everyone kind of wants to learn about, which is a little bit more exciting. Hotspots for me would be Barcelona, um, Tallinn in Estonia. I actually just ended up getting off a podcast with somebody um, in this. Not many people know about Estonia. It's a very small country, about a million people. Their two largest exports are technology companies and supermodels. So you take that as you will. It's a very fun place to be. Ubud in Bali 
or Chenggu in Bali. Those are probably the two hot spots that I would hang out at. Um, anywhere in Thailand is really awesome. Um, Boracay in the Philippines or Cebu in the Philippines is a really good spot to be able to work long term. They've all got really good internet. Uh, I really like Costa Rica in general. Anywhere on the coasts is fantastic. Don't go to Tulum. Go to Playa del Carmen. It's about 45 minutes north of Tulum. That's a fantastic location. Really great kind of culture, great beach vibes, but yet you can get access to everything that you need to be able to work long-term remotely. Uh, Medellin in Colombia. You know, anywhere where there's like a really good expat culture, which I think is actually going to proliferate even more and more as we're seeing um, remote work kind of explode and move all over the world and location independence by extension explode all over the world. We're going to see a lot of great stuff. Places like Cairo, I wouldn't go there as like my first city if I was a digital nomad because it's pretty rough and you've got to learn the rules. And in any of those cities, what I would suggest that you do is take, take whatever mindset you have, your Western mindset, put it in a little box you know, put it to the side and just be open to any and all opportunities that are available to you. And don't necessarily look at something and say, wow, that's totally counter to my perspectives. And therefore I don't like it. Be very agnostic towards all of these cultures. And you're going to learn so much interesting stuff that you wouldn't have never really had access to um, in your particular corner of the world. This is a bit of a last switching gears question, but you run the running remote conference. And for anybody out there, I feel like a lot of people have a desire to perhaps write a book one day or maybe get a speaking gig or, or something like that. You know, it furthers your mission, gets you out there. And I specifically wanted to ask about speaking gigs because you bring together people to talk at this conference and obviously everybody's in their own little niche or where they might want to speak. But a lot of people like the idea of speaking somewhere one day, or maybe they're doing it now. How do you get speaking gigs at, at your conference or what, what do you guys look for? Well, okay. That's uh, <laughs> I got a bit of a hack for that, uh, to be honest cool. with you. Yeah. I'm looking for advice so, here. So yeah. So um, here's what I do. And I think it's probably different from a lot of other conference organizers, but the, the core concept is the same. Uh, I don't look at social media because that can be faked, right? You can get a hundred thousand people on Instagram for a thousand bucks, right? And you can have a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. Um, I don't look at TikTok. I don't look at uh, YouTube or anything like that. What I look at is search volume on Google. So I would type your name into Google trends or into basically the Google search tool. And it would tell me how many people are searching for your name every single month. And that's the core indicator that I look for in terms of identifying whether or not this person would be valuable to our audience. Now, obviously they have to be connected to the, you know, the subject matter that we want to be able to talk about. So if you don't have that, like if no one's searching for you on Google at this point, the next thing that I would suggest that you do, which we do let people in, is get as niche as humanly possible, niche down as much as humanly possible as you can. So uh, we have someone who is speaking at the conference that has almost no search volume. She's really interesting, but 
it's um, working with kids. So her talk is like, how do you actually work with kids? And that was something that wasn't really touched on all that much inside of all the other conversations that we had. And we said, oh, wow, that's a new angle towards remote work. And the other thing that she did, which was really great, is she presented us a deck that she did on her own. So she got like a speaking gig in front of, I don't know, like 12 people or something like that, but she recorded it. And then she was able to actually send us that presentation. And then we could go through the presentation and say, wow, this is somebody that we could really kind of work with. Their presentation looks good. The way that they communicate is effective. Uh, I would also go to a, um, it's a community that's almost available in every major city in the world, which is Toastmasters. If you want to get better at public speaking and you just show up, you give a presentation and then they critique you on it. It's pretty valuable if you want to get better at speaking in front of large groups of people. Uh, yeah. So those are the core pieces, niche down, have a good presentation, have it available to the actual person that you're pitching. And then obviously this is a bit of another hack, but if you have a warm introduction to the conference organizer, that's always going to be a lot easier than approaching someone cold. Um, probably we get probably about 500 people that pitch us to speak at the running remote conference cold. And we take maybe five of those people out of that 500. Whereas if it's a warm referral, we're probably going to take 50% of those people because it's someone that we trust in our network. And we know that there's someone that um, can be at least valuable in some context uh, to the organization. So take that as you will. I wish I could give you a better hack towards that stuff. Oh, one other point that I would touch on is if you can start with smaller speaking gigs, then you need to ratchet yourself up. So you need to like get to the next level. So are you speaking in front of a hundred people? Great. Can you deliver really well on that? I would also go back to the organizer and see if you're getting feedback from your attendees. So we have actually an app at our conference that can rate every speaker out of five stars. And then we give them that information back and would say, hey, you actually were the best talk of the entire conference based off of your star rating. Of course, we're going to have that person back. Uh, the person who got the, you know, the worst reviews, um, we'll give them that feedback and we'll say, hey, you know, it doesn't look like it was a very good presentation. You might want to take a look at this or that, you know, really try to be helpful towards them succeeding. But if you can get those star ratings up and you can get that feedback and become better at it, then uh, you are obviously on your way to being bigger and better. Um, in terms of, in terms of speaking engagements. I don't know, Jason, do you do a lot of speaking? Is it something that you really like to do? Personally, for me, I find it terrifying <laughs> and, uh, I'm now trying to do as little of it as humanly possible. Yeah, no, I, I have, and it's, it's fun, but it is certainly a lot of work to get, you know, you don't want to stand up there and, and bomb. So, you know, to get it to a place where you feel ready to go is a certain time investment. So, you know, you have to know what you're getting into at the same time. <laughs> Test your decks. I yeah. would, I mean, if it's one that you think is really important, I would do it 20 times before you do it on stage uh, to somebody, right? Like just, just get it out there, get the timing right. Um, you know, if you follow really good decks that I've seen, anything by Simon Sinek. So if you just Google Simon Sinek, he's amazing at presenting. Uh, I would also look at Obama. 
he's probably one of the best speech, one of the best guys to deliver a speech that you can think of. The way that he pauses and communicates is everything is planned out the way that he's sequencing everything. And those can give you really good insights into fantastic speaking because sometimes you just give the information, but then um, when you're giving the information, yeah, that's one thing and people will feel informed, but you need to connect with them emotionally. And that's what makes a really memorable talk. Yeah, totally agree. And I think, I mean, I think one of the ways to do that is just really care about your mission or whatever it is that you're sort of furthering in terms of what you present with your content. It's people can tell if you care. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, don't just do it for the accolades or the ego. You do it because you, you care about delivering that message to that that audience and it's an opportunity to further a a mission or or help people and serve people in some way. Yeah. I did have a, um, about four or five years ago, I was doing quite a few speaking gigs and I just started phoning them in and I realized, Oh, I need to kind of check myself here for a second because number one, what am I actually doing? Um, is this serving the mission of the company and, and helping me uh, and helping the attendees that are coming to this particular talk. And I realized, you know, probably not. And I really changed my philosophy towards speaking in front of large groups of people. Um, I recognized that it actually was very painful for me. Like I was getting butterflies in my stomach every single time I would go up on stage and, and talk to these people. So I realized, okay, I should only really do this if I can provide significant amounts of value to that audience because it's putting me through a lot of stress. Uh, I actually have, so we have a running remote conference that's coming up pretty soon. And um, I always do the introductory talk for everybody. And I'm already starting to get those kind of butterflies. But for me, the conference was really just continuing on with that mission statement of trying to empower people and the world's transition towards remote work. So of course, I'm excited about doing it. I don't want to be able to do it, but it's definitely very stressful. And uh, there's a lot of anxiety that's co-associated with it. Well, good luck with it, man. I know it's coming up soon and uh, give you a chance here to just share whatever you'd like as we close it out. Sure. So, I mean, if you're interested in checking out the book, go to runningremote.com slash book. Uh, We've got everything connected to how to build really the one secret that everyone had pre-pandemic that no one unfortunately had post-pandemic with regards to remote teams. We teach that singular lesson inside of this book, and we've got all the information kind of connected to that. Um, but if you can't afford the book, and if you can't go to the conference, runningremote.com, go to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash runningremote. We put all of our talks up there for free. And, uh, and again, it just reinforces that mission of trying to empower people to be able to work remotely. And if you are currently traveling, remotely and still work and, and working, um, this is definitely the YouTube channel for you because it's going to teach you the tactics and strategies you need to be able to hopefully become a successful long-term remote worker that is traveling. Yeah. I mean, like you nailed it with travelers, the big perk is being able to earn money while you roam. So you can travel for as long as you'd like sustainably. And certainly with the explosion of remote work, that is 
one of the easiest and best ways to do that. I mean, now more than ever, it, it used to be so much harder. <laughs> it just gets easier and easier with this sort of mass acceptance of uh, of remote work because you have employment opportunities. Of course, you can start your own thing and the technology is a lot easier than you know it was even 10 years ago. So it's, it's a good time for travelers. I'd love to hear your perspective on this, Jason. I mean, w- what do you think about the term digital nomadism? And the kind of the usage of that term, because I, I was almost going to say digital nomads, but then I thought to myself, "Ah, I want to kind of hold back on this because I feel that term is kind of thrown around and it has inside of it some unfortunate biases where, and this is just my interpretation being in that community for many, many years, like 15 years where they're really wasn't digital nomads, quote unquote, but we were digital nomads. Um, Now it seems like the fastest way to become a successful digital nomad is to sell people courses on how to be a digital nomad. So I'm, I'm kind of concerned about, because I just feel that that's not, that's not very helpful to people inside of the community. They want to be able to see examples of someone that works for Facebook as an example that, you know, works remotely or someone that, you know, has their own agency as an example and, you know, and is able to travel the world. Um, What are your thoughts on where digital nomadism is, is going? I heard a statistic recently that pre-pandemic it was 5 million people and we're currently at 50 million people stated as digital nomads or people that self-describe themselves as digital nomads. So I think the space is absolutely exploding. Yeah, it blows my mind uh, because like you, I was nomadic before these terms existed. And although then I wasn't a digital nomad and using that term where I was running an online business, but or, or running a business from a laptop or being a part of a company that's running that I'm able to work remotely. But, but still the concept was like sort of foreign and weird and you didn't meet a lot of people that lived in this way. You just kind of met them being in the spaces that you were, but then it started getting publicized and started getting traction. And then people were writing about it. The internet kept, you know, getting bigger and bigger with blogs and podcasts and everything like this. So the word is out. And I think, um, in that way, it's a good thing because like my mission here is to help people travel the world on their terms. And this is one of the ways that you can do it. I prefer the term location independent because I feel like that is a little bit more of the flexibility of kind of, yeah, that can mean working from home. That can mean spending three months in a place. You're independent of your location. So you can travel, you can be nomadic, you can work from home, you can do a combination of that. You know, when it comes down to it, I think the idea of digital nomadism has become part of the lexicon now, right? So like you said, there's an association with it, I think, because it's been in the news. There's been a lot of stories. People have been writing about it for for a while now. So then when that type of mass acceptance of a term occurs, inevitably there is there are associations that people will make with a term like that, right? So you might have the negative association of, well, I'm thinking about all the, you know, people bumming around in, in Tulum and, you know, whatever, selling, like you said, selling digital because whatever the case is. Um, or you might have totally positive things that come up when you hear a term like that. So I think that comes down to just individuals 
kind of making broad strokes on what a term means and a type of person. As far as like the movement, I feel that it is a good thing, but we need to tread carefully because the impact is real on these communities, right? Where where digital nomads are working and that that become these hotspots, it's it's not just like it shouldn't just be sort of this playground for foreigners. It, it should there should be a way where there's a a holistic integration of that, and I think these conversations need to be had. You know, I, I don't think there's I, I can't say, oh, well, there's this one solution. And, you know, if you do this in these hotspots, all of this is going to work and, and everything's going to be harmonious. You know, there are a multitude of uh, challenges, I think, and also positive things that come from a movement like this. That's what it is. Right. You have a group of people coming in. Thousands, sometimes maybe more into into a community. There's no way it's not going to impact it. So how do you. How do you manage that in a way that benefits everybody as much as possible? And that, that, I think, is a really crucial question with remote work. And it should not just be something that benefits the people that are able and can afford to just move around and go to these different places. You have to look at the other side. And then there has to be some kind of... uh, I thought about writing this, like some kind of code of ethics or something that, you know, some kind of mass thing that people would just agree to that it's kind of like, hey, I'm a part of this. I'm I'm signing on. And this doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect every time, but it just means that I recognize this set of rules and I'm going to do my best as an individual to kind of abide by these things. And if you can get enough traction amongst the community of digital nomads to kind of accept a certain uh, standard in terms of impact, then I think we can start moving things in in a good direction. I'm not saying it's in a bad direction. I just it's it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, I so this has been a constant debate uh particularly inside of the running remote community for a while, which was we historically said we're not this this conference is not for digital nomads. This is for people that run a business, not necessarily the individuals that exist inside of that business. We have digital nomads that work in our company. But, you know, we're not going to do like a travel hacking talk, as an example. That's not about who we are as an organization. But, and and that's still fair. And I actually think, because there are a ton of conferences about digital nomadism that you can get access to. But the other underlying issue, which I have been dealing with for a long time, which is super frustrating because I love the digital nomad community, is the, the selling of oneself back to each other. <laughs> <laughs> which is just sort of like okay well you know i'm going to i'm going to teach you how to become a a seven figure digital nomad right and it's just sort of like and i've i've spoken to a couple of these guys and it's disingenuous because it's like well the reason yeah you are a seven figure digital nomad but 95% of your income comes from selling courses about how to be a digital nomad right so it's like you're not actually what you're teaching people probably in that course is, okay, step one, uh, sell the same, make your own course and sell it back to the same community. And it's very kind of like insular. And I feel that that's not really teaching the true lessons of remote work and location independence to your point. So I've been very conflicted about using that terminology. And I really do like location independence because I think about when I think about a, a perfect example of a digital nomad, I think about uh, my friend, Ken who is the COO of Hotjar. 
And Hotjar has about 500 employees. Ken's been nomadic for 15 years. He's married. He has two kids. And he's been traveling the world for 15 years. He has a job, right? He doesn't run his own business, but he's, he's an executive in this company. And he's incredibly successful. His kids are homeschooled. They, you know, when they wanted to learn about ancient Egypt, they went to Egypt type of thing. Like it was such a cool experience. But inside of, you know, what he's doing, he's like, you know, there's no kind of Instagram, you know, hacking or there's no, the kind of, the conversation that's currently been happening right now that I hear when I go to a co-working space in Changu, as an example, or in Tulum, is not about sitting down and saying, we're digital nomads and our work life is kind of divided from our lifestyle. It is that the lifestyle is my income. And I've just been so frustrated with that because I feel we're selling, um, we're selling, you know, kind of a, a, we're pulling the wool over people's eyes. Uh, saying, well, no, the reality is that like, actually what you need to do, step one is probably get a job. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be a much uh, more successful way of becoming a long-term digital nomad or location independent worker is having a job as opposed to starting a social media agency, um, which everyone will tell you when you open up these digital nomad courses is what you should do. But the reality is that none of them actually do that. They actually just sell courses on how to be digital nomads. It's frustrating to me. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't speak for all of those course creators. Of course, I. I you know, it, I, I think it's like anything else where it just depends on the quality of what somebody's teaching and, and their experience and, and what they bring to the table. You know, you could say the same thing about the crypto space or anything like that. It, it's there are always going to be you know people that come in and they want to teach the things that they they know. And that's worked for them. And uh, some of those programs suck and other ones are able to get people results. And I think, you know, the advice I would give for somebody looking for programs like that is to just look at the results that you've been able to give people. And if they're, if that creator has been able to actually give a certain type of person that result that they're promising and you think you are in line with that skill set or, or you can get there, then perhaps it's a fit. It's, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it, I, I, understand I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I've, so, I've spoken a lot with, uh, my friend, uh, Matt Kepnes about this, who, um, you probably do know he runs travel con nomadic Matt. And, you know, it, it, like, I think there is a ton of value for people that are creating content right now around that particular subject. But I would just love for people to be realistic. I see so many digital nomads when I do like a, a like a little group meeting in a new city, right? Uh, I sit down and there's usually, you know, like a couple dozen people that will, that will come out for drinks. And there's always at least one guy that's like, okay, I quit my job a month ago and now I'm in, um, I'm in, uh, Medellin and I'm hanging out and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to start my social media agency. And I'm like, did you do that before in your other job? He's like, no, but this is what I need to do. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh man, it's not going to work out for you, dude. Like you need to make a very quick pivot and recognize that, you know, I would have started your social media agency where you were with your job, 
right? Like do that when you finish your job at five, go do the social media agency, get yourself up to a couple thousand dollars per month and then quit your job. But a lot of people just pull the cord immediately and they're kind of just, again, it goes back to this discipline conversation that we were having earlier, which is really focusing on building yourself up to the point in which you can have a sustainable relationship. Because I, you've probably seen this as much as me, so many of these broken dreams of these guys that go off to, you know, Southeast Asia or South America and come back six months later with their tails between their legs because they just didn't have the right infrastructure in place and they were being told the wrong stuff uh, to be successful. And it, it's frustrating to me because I think we could have a lot more. And And those people are totally soured to the experience of location independence because they think to themselves, oh, well, that didn't work. And that was just you know a Ponzi scheme. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's actually really successful. You just have to be a lot more pragmatic about it, which is, yeah, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to work on you're going to have to work super hard and maybe make less money, or maybe you're going to have your own business, but you're only going to make $2,000 a month as opposed to $10,000 a month in your previous job. And that's fine because you're going to actually be able to experience this way of, of working and traveling that very few people have been able to get access to. Yeah. I, I think that's the key there is just the transparency and the kind of the, yeah, just the honest conversation of what it is and what it can be. And, you know, then people make decisions for themselves and, you know, it's, it is a lot easier to look back and, and, or to give advice now after you have all this business, I'm not speaking to you specifically, but you get a lot of business experience and then, you know, you can see what somebody's doing and and you're like, well, maybe that's not the best way to go about it. But then we, you know, reflect on our own lives and the sort of mistakes that we had to make and the things that we screwed up as, as entrepreneurs, especially early on, we don't know what you're doing and still don't know what you're doing most of the time. Right. At least I'm only speaking for myself there, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain, it's almost like a rite of passage. Like you have to do dumb things and make mistakes to get to a certain point. Um, because it's, if you don't think that you're going to have things that, fail or that you don't end up doing better later or smarter later it's you'll never start anything because you almost have to like slog through it to get to the point where you can do things smarter and and, and better i agree with you on that one Uh, my my only kind of caveat to that is if you're gonna go out and take a risk at least have the net available to you have that have that nine to five don't quit your nine to five before you just kind of go out into the world and work remotely. And the beauty of it is you can actually get all of the, all of the things that you're really looking for in your life. Um, you can do now because there are so many companies that are allowing people to be location independent. We're going to mention Airbnb one last time <laughs> during this podcast, but Airbnb have stated that they are remote forever. They just announced that last week. And they're also inside of their remote work agreement, they're stating every single employee can be nomadic 90 days out of the year. How cool is that? Like, there's so many of these opportunities that are available to people. And you just have to look for these companies and, you know, kind of get co-associated with that mission. You'll be able to do the thing that you've been dreaming about, probably if you're listening to this podcast right now, and you've been probably listening to it for a while and thinking to themselves, oh, one day I'm going to pull the trigger and, you know, become location independent. But you think to yourselves, well, I have to start a business in order to be able to do that. No, you don't have to actually. There's plenty of other opportunities and directions that you can take. One of them would be working for Airbnb uh, because you can work 90 days 
nomadic every single year and uh, continue to work in that company. So I just feel there's so many of those opportunities that are available and um, a lot of them are having the pull, the wool pulled over their eyes with the, hey, um, you're going to become a seven-figure digital nomad next week. It's not going to happen. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, can I ask you one more thing? What do you think about the great resignation yeah. then as it relates to all of this stuff? I actually, talking about talks, uh, I just did a deck on the great resignation turning into the great migration. I think that one of the big underlying, well, the biggest underlying variable connected to the great resignation is remote work. People have more mobility in their job than they ever have before. And I think as we move from pandemic to endemic, we're going to realize that a lot of these remote workers that were in San Francisco, as an example, and now they're in Boulder, you know, uh, a lot of estimates state that about 20% of employees that were allowed to work remotely during the pandemic have moved from the city where their office was, which is crazy when you think about that statistic. Uh, so they moved out of state the vast majority of the time, or they've moved to another city in the state. And I think the next step actually is location independence. Um, so I would probably predict that within the next five years, we're at 50 million digital nomads right now. I think we'll probably be at like a quarter of a million um, long term. And I think that'll be, that's incredibly, like if you're running a co-working space right now, <laughs> if you're in like the digital nomad location independent travel industry right now, this is like the time um, for, for you, because there's no, there's been no better time than now in order for people to be able to free themselves and get access to those types of work opportunities and travel opportunities. So I see it as nothing but positive. Um, and I think that we're going to go through some difficulties over the next six months with, you know, the economy is going to melt around us. It's, it's not going to be great. Um, but then after that, we're going to come out, we're going to lick our wounds. I, I think effectively what's happening right now is the world economy needs to get off drugs, which is infusing trillions of dollars of capital inside of world economies and not really paying attention to the long-term implications of that. So we all need to get off drugs and that's going to be painful. But once we're through there, we're going to have, I think, a completely new age of location independence uh, throughout the world. Mm. What do you think? <laughs> I'm very interested, by the way, in, in your perspectives on this, because I dabble with this space, but I'm not thinking about it anywhere near as deeply as you are. No, I mean, I think you are. And I think you're, you're really smack dab in the middle of it. It's, it's just, it's happening. And I, I agree that, well, first of all, yes, the getting a remote job thing should certainly be on the table if you're looking to earn a living and travel. And it doesn't have to be that you start something for yourself. What I find fascinating is when you when you mentioned that it will, you, your prediction to be a quarter of a billion people is that what you said of uh, digital no that become digital nomads, which is insane. I mean, those are you're, now you're talking about an entire giant country of people yep. that are living all over the place. And I find it fascinating to see countries for the first time in a long time hustling to get people to come right like it used to be like hey you can't no you can only come if you're this this and this and now they're they're actively creating programs and marketing themselves through these digital nomad visas because they're starting to see the value in it this is such an important point that we, we got to address it as well which is 
the real secret that large corporate. So if you really want to empower remote work throughout the entire world, the biggest barrier right now, and I got to tell you, whenever I sit down with a company that has more than 10,000 employees, I rarely sit down with the founders of the company. I rarely sit down with um, the CEO or the CEO or uh, the COO or the board. I'm almost entirely sitting down with their lawyers (laughs) and their lawyers are saying, sounds fun. Okay. Everyone. (laughs) It's not fun at all. I'm not a lawyer dude at all. Like, (laughs) first of all, lawyers don't use the word dude. I don't think it's ever come out of their mouths in their entire lives. But the thing that they, they'll tell me is a version of, listen, Liam, we've got a hundred billion dollars worth of legal liability hanging over our heads for taxation. Because there's a case that's happening right now in the state of California, it should be over in a couple months, where there was a tech company and this tech company had a large amount of call center reps and they went remote during the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, a couple of hundred of these call center reps stated that they were going to move to Texas. And they said, okay, yeah, you're moving to Texas, you're working remotely, so that's cool. You can continue to work, you know, in your job. Well, they didn't move to Texas. What they did is one guy inside of that company said, hey guys, I can set you up with a dummy address in Texas and you can continue to live in California where there's a 12% state tax and operate out of Texas where there is no state tax. And then the state of California said, hey, so none of those employees moved and they're still in California. They're still consuming you know, state services in California. And unfortunately, the corporation jointly is responsible with the direct employees for those taxes plus damages, obviously, and interest. So this is happening everywhere. And uh, that's why, as an example, at Meta, previously Facebook, they are very heavily connected to remote work. They want 70% of their workforce to be working remotely within the next two years. And they state that you can work remotely, but you must check into an office once a month. Why must you check into an office once a month, you might say? That sounds pretty stupid for a lot of people that want to be location-independent workers. Well, it's to be able to make sure that they are legally tax residents of that particular state. And there's a lot of companies called EORs, Employer of Record Companies, that are trying to help facilitate this. So they own corporations all over planet Earth. And then basically the company says, hey, you're going to work for this EOR in Spain, but all of the all of your labor will actually be our property. So it's kind of like this shell game where you have this corporation that isn't directly owned by the company, but is a flow through entity from a labor perspective. Again, it's super bureaucratically boring, but like super critical (laughs) to be able to get to billions of remote workers uh, throughout the world that can travel. And then the second part of this, which is happening almost at exactly the same time, and it'll be interesting to see which group ends up winning, is digital nomad visas, which they're being called. Uh, And they're saying, listen, we want a ton of people to come to our country, particularly people that want to stay for six months, consume no government services whatsoever, you know, go to restaurants, buy Airbnbs, and then leave so we don't actually have to support them. They just basically bring net new dollars into, the, into our economy and then leave. Um, 
So let's have you guys in exchange for five grand, I'll let you work here for a year and I will state that I will not go after you from any, any type of taxation. Right. That's, that's effectively the promise of the digital nomad visas. Um, and there's a lot of other kind of like weird stuff. So me and my business partner, we both have a US corporation. I'm Canadian. He's Australian. We must fly into the United States four times a year to be able to make sure that we're compliant towards that US corporation as an example, right? Like those laws are still on the books and all of that stuff really needs to be updated if we're going to get to the next level of location independence, which is really just saying, listen, we all have these passports, which are great, um, but fundamentally we're going to be a tax resident of a particular country. And it doesn't necessarily mean if there's, it's, it's not that big of a deal if none of those people that are working in that company are actually located in that country. I think once we're there, digital nomadism, location independence, whatever you want to call it, is going to completely explode. Yeah. That is a difficult place to get to when you talk about bureaucracy and governments and how dinosaur-like they move. <laughs> There's a company called um, Safety Wing. I don't know if you know yeah. of these Yeah, we've guys, had the founder they... on uh, uh, a couple times. He's a, he's a Norwegian, actually. So Yeah, so I mean... They're trying to come up with a country uh, now, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not that actually, like, one of my critiques of that is governments are really, really slow. <laughs> I actually think probably, and they're not going to believe a digital country exists that, you know, like, where's the due diligence on that side to be able to actually say, yeah, I'm going to let this person into my country it may be a child molester, um, but whatever, we're just going to let them in. I think actually the way to solve this is on the government side saying, let's encourage these digital nomad visas, which some of them are ridiculous. I think Bali, you have to hold $100,000 in escrow uh, to be able to get your visa, which like how many digital nomads have a hundred grand lying around? Probably not many. Um, but I think probably the fair market price of a digital nomad visa should be like five grand a year. You continue to pay your taxes in the country that you are a, that you have tax residency in. Uh, and, and that's it. I mean, that's the future that I would love to be able to see. Um, as of right now, it's still going to be pretty difficult because the, if you do not have those things in place, companies, I'm going to be continuing to talk to lawyers all day long about, man, we'd love to have our employees location independent. They're all asking for it, but we cannot do it because we have so much legal liability hanging over our heads that if that triggered, um, even the insurance on that would cost us millions of dollars per year. Yeah. And who gets screwed in that situation on, on, for these big companies, right? That the worker that has to check into the office once a month and can't have the total freedom because of some legal obligation that... I have a buddy of mine, and um, I won't tell you the tech company that works for it, but if I mention it, you would know exactly who it is. You know the tech company. And he flies back to San Francisco once a month from Medellin in Colombia just to check in. And think about the uh, the carbon footprint on that. It's horrible. It's horrible. But it's a don't ask, don't tell policy that's currently in place saying we've 
solved for all of the requirements that we need to solve for as a company. So we've done our due diligence on our side to be able to state- We're done. Yeah, our hands are clean. We're, we're done because you are you are a tax resident of California, right? And we And we've done the amount of due diligence that is required in order to be able to prove that to a tax authority. So outside of that, you know, hey, you do you. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that's 2,000 pounds of carbon- Every time you get in a plane, um, the average American consumes 4,700 pounds of carbon per year. Um, so, you know, every time you get in a plane, that's half your carbon load all sucked up in, in one flight. It's really problematic. And I think that um, we need to solve for all these problems. We basically just need to be able to get these digital nomad visas cleared because I think that's the fastest, most pragmatic way to be able to get there. And the other side of that um, is just fraught with so much more bureaucracy. You're not going to be able to convince a country to, <laughs> you're not going to be able to convince a country to say, hey, yeah, we, we've come up with a country, right? I mean, I, I know that crypto is big and everyone loves Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like governments, you trust governments because they're these large scale institutions, that have been around for thousands of hundreds and thousands of years. And that's why they are peop organizations that we trust. Um, I think the fastest way to do it is to work with governments, not against them. Governments, state governments, federal governments, it's like they just want to bring in as much revenue as possible, right? And really, it's, it's yeah, I mean, that's their stance, but is there a way to? To value the uh, the amount of money that it costs, you know, say per day for a person to spend, you know, it's really about the resource draw, right? Like their argument is that, okay, well, you're using California services and resources and everything like that. But this guy who's in Medellin the whole month and flies back for two days isn't really using those those California state resources anymore, right? But then maybe he does occasionally something happens and then, you know, who knows? So it's complicated. This conversation really heated up, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm so passionate about this subject because I think that if you look at um, the proliferation of remote work and location independence, I think that I think that this is quite possibly the most pragmatic way towards world peace. And, and I don't, and I know that sounds hyperbolic when I kind of make a statement like that, but if you could get everyone on planet earth to be able to fly to the place that they, you know, where they disagree with that particular country, like let's choose the worst possible place you could think of, um, Afghanistan right now, right? I think if you flew into Afghanistan, you had dinner with an Afghan family, you'd have a completely different context of their lives and how they interacted with their families. And, you know, yeah, I just get so frustrated when I, <laughs> when I see that, because I've had a taste of that. And the the big scary, you know, um, the the big scary monster of a particular country that's super evil. When you actually get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's just it's usually just like one or two a holes that are at the head of it, <laughs> and everyone else are really nice people. Um, and and that's the thing that I would really love to be able to see over the next couple decades. Otherwise, we're gonna blow each other up. Um, and, and I find it as we see the proliferation of 
weapons becoming more and more powerful. You know, technology and the ability to be able to kill each other is going up on an exponential scale, but it's still the same single individual that can make that particular decision. So a thousand years ago, if you had a crossbow, you were awesome, but maybe you could take out one or two people. Now, if you have a, if you have a genetically modified um, virus, you can kill millions and it's just the same individual. So I feel really scared about the future and where that's going. And I think we all need to be able to come together and recognize that everyone just wants to basically be happy. Uh, and if you could get to that point, I think that we would have a, we would have a utopia um, in the world that, you know, would, would save us effectively from the direction that we're going, which I don't think is very good. Uh, so I'd love to be able to see that happen. And how can we set it up in a way that opens it up for everybody, right? And you see the lists every year. There's the passport rankings, right? And then you look further down. And, and one of the uh, key metrics on that is, you know, how many countries can a passport get you into or how, how much of the world is open to you if you have X passport. And, you know, it's just blind luck where you're born. So if you carry a, you know, a certain passport and, and you can't get into any countries well, then remote work isn't really accessible to everybody, is it? I, I will have, um, I'll share one story with you, which is we had a couple attendees for the running remote conference that are Russian, that have that are, that are on Russian passports. And it was going to be very easy to be able to get their visa applications to Canada. And the day before the invasion, they were all denied because things changed, right? And some of these people were so excited about being able to come to the conference and they were so heartbroken that they didn't get the ability to be able to do it. Is that their fault? No, that's their government's fault. And I think that this is something that we need to be able to take into consideration. Uh, and, and we had the same thing with our Ukrainian attendees as well. We had attendees from Ukraine and they can't go because they can't leave the country. Right. So, I mean, this is only going to get worse. Unfortunately, I think we're going to end up being in a really, in the next, the next year and a half is going to be pretty tough. Um, I think we're going to, I think we're currently in the midst of a reset, but I think that things are going to get a lot better and hopefully we can get to a point in which we can recognize individuals and their security risk as opposed to the countries that they inhabit. And I know that that's a more complicated way to be able to deal with things, but I would have no problem having the UN, as an example, do an international background check on me and know that I'm a good guy because yes, with a Canadian passport, I can go anywhere on planet earth, but I've had, if I have an Afghani passport, good luck <laughs> you being able, and those people want to be able to travel too. They have the same desires as everyone else, but it's, it's the responsibility of people like you, Jason, who has a voice to be able to hopefully move that a little bit more in the right direction. Uh, because I'm so passionate about this subject. I wish that everyone could have access to these types of opportunities, but they can't right now. And I think it is really how we move to a more understanding, friendly world. Mm. Well, I appreciate you coming on to share. I mean, this, these conversations are important and as we dive deeper and deeper, you can see the various issues, considerations, 
benefits, <laughs> all of the different things around uh, remote work. Uh, it's a deep, deep topic. And, you know, the legal aspect, there's so much to it. So it's ever evolving. We'll see where we're at in six months, a year, five years. That, that should be interesting. And in the meantime, would love to uh, stay in touch and maybe maybe there's a part two in our future as things have continued to evolve. Yeah, I'd love to uh, come back in a year and see where we're at. I mean, I hope that the world, I hope that, I hope it's the direction that I'm, I'm hoping for, <laughs> which is that we've got so many more people that are able to work remotely and independently and we're able to um, have a lot more different kind of positive opportunities for travel. I'm a little bit concerned that that might not be the case, but um, here's hoping that we end up in a better spot. Cool. Thanks for your time, Liam. We'll be leaving all the links that we mentioned in the show notes and things like that. We'll chat soon. There you have it. Special thanks to Liam Martin for dropping by the show, sharing his knowledge on remote work, which is extensive and we could have gone on for quite some time. And as this movement continues to evolve, I hope uh, to have him back to discuss some of the trends as things continue to change. I'm wondering how this explosion in remote work has maybe impacted your life, maybe changed your life, or maybe it hasn't. I don't know. You can answer that question, get in touch, or just say hi. I just wanted to mention that one more time. I'd love to make this a two-way conversation. So please reach out if you haven't done so. I now want to transition to a couple things. Well, I'm going to leave you with a quote that I think is a great one from Mahatma Gandhi, who, uh, well, this quote, as I was reflecting on this, it means a lot to me in the way that I lived my life in hindsight. And I, I took this one to heart. So I want to share that in a minute. But first, let me talk about this period I'm in in my life right now. This very day, because I teased it out in the beginning, how to get the most out of an important and often overlooked part of travel, or you could say part of life. If you're taking a big break, whether it's a gap year, a long trip, or you've just come back from some kind of transformative trip, no matter how long it was, really, or in my case right now, as I'm recording this, I have just officially finished what I would say is my summer holiday with my family where I really cleared my plate of work. I batched a ton of stuff. I got prepped. I sold off one of my companies that I'm no longer involved with. And I just stripped everything down in my life so I could spend time with my family this summer and travel. And now it's over. Today is my daughter's first day of school in her life. She's been going to you know preschool, daycare, kindergarten type thing here in Norway. And... It hit me pretty hard today. Wow, her first day of school. My son's back in daycare. My wife's back in work. Here I am recording this podcast for you. I'm getting back into the mix here, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of like the end of this sort of special time that we had together this summer. Never capture it again. Everybody's only this age one time. And I'm I'm in a bit of mourning, to be honest with you. I'm kind of like mourning the loss of... This summer, in some ways, and not in a negative way, just kind of like, wow, that it's kind of tough. Like that's over, and it's it's done, and we're moving on, and that's how life is, right? So I know you've had this feeling before when 
a summer has ended or a season has ended or a job has ended or you've gotten back from a trip and there's that that time period where it's just like, okay, wow, that was incredible or maybe you're excited to be back and you've eaten all the foods you've missed and you see all the friends you wanted to see and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm kind of like a little sad right now or I don't know, just feeling a little, wow, like that's that's over and now I'm kind of just moving on with my life and it's strange. So anyway, in this little morning period now and I was thinking, well, how can we all collectively get the most out of this this kind of mourning period, mourning the the end of something? I came up with three things. First of all, reflect. And that has really helped me today as I was reflecting on the summer, just thinking about the experiences we've had as a family and knowing that just because they're over doesn't mean they don't stay with us forever. You know, that's what travel does for us. It stays with us in a lot of different ways, sometimes in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, sometimes in ways that are, are deeper than surface level that come out at, at some of the most unexpected times. I, there's a lot of travel that sticks with you forever for the rest of your life. And I think just reflecting on that and just remembering, hey, okay, yeah, this thing's over. I'm a little sad. This summer with my family has ended in my case. And that's okay. We have all these memories to take with us. And just reflecting on some of the things we've experienced, some of the maybe perhaps change that has taken place within us as individuals, within myself as an individual, it just, I don't know, kind of eased, eased the pain a little bit. <laughs> so reflecting was the first thing. The second thing is creating. And one way I've done this is uh, created photo albums around the trip, which also gives us future chance to reflect and was just another, I guess, an extension on the reflection, but the creation of something like a photo album or a, a physical thing, perhaps maybe it's a journal or just writing about it, whatever the case is, uh, kind of making a physical representation of of that or here talking about it on the podcast with you is another way I'm creating sort of something around this trip. And that, to me, that feels good. That, that has really helped. And, and I know that I can bring some of that experience to future shows um, with ideas, maybe perspectives that I didn't have before. And that just feels good to me to be able to create and to put things out there and perhaps give them to your family, to your friends, or to podcast listeners, whatever the case is for you. So number two, create. Number three, I think this was an important one for me. Uh, Just coming up with this list, by the way, has really helped me. So I thank you for that, for uh, holding a little space here for me so I could share this with you. Number three is go easy on yourself. Hey, you know, I'm not going to say that I wasn't totally on the verge of a complete breakdown when I dropped my daughter off to school today. The tears were flowing and I was trying to hold back, but only because I was like, I I had to hold it together for her. It's okay to show emotion, but I I didn't want her to, you know, it was her first day. I didn't want her to feel scared and see me kind of all sad and not understand that I'm just sad because she's growing up and it's just like the beginning of a new chapter in her life and in mine and in our families. And uh, so anyway, I held it together as much as I could sat in the back row during the the parents meeting <laughs> but if i was alone the the floodgates would have been open uh so it was it was it was tough but you know go easy on yourself because hey 
there is that element of mourning that involves perhaps some sadness, maybe even some uh, depression in some ways, or just kind of, yeah, maybe just some heaviness, some sadness. And that's okay too. That, that can be a part of this. You might be super bummed that your gap year is over, you know, three weeks later when you're back at your desk and it's all feels like a dream. Like, did that really happen? Well, it did. It will stick with you. So don't forget to reflect, to create, and go easy on yourself when you get sad. So I wanted to share those three things with you. And now to wrap this up, and this was a long one, so I'll let you go about your day. I'm going to share this quote from Mahatma Gandhi who said, to believe in something and not live it is dishonest. To believe in something and not live it is dishonest. That is powerful. And what I was alluding to earlier is just, I'm, I'm really glad that when I look back on sort of becoming a nomad right out of college and, and doing that whole thing, I'm so grateful that I did that because I didn't really believe in that traditional sort of climbing the corporate ladder office environment for myself. I didn't judge it in others. I didn't think it was necessarily a bad thing. It just didn't feel right for me. And it would have been dishonest to live a a sort of a work lifestyle that didn't really feel aligned with who I was. And, And of course, that is difficult when you don't know what another version of that might look like. And right now I'm trying to figure out what the next version of my work lifestyle is. So I'm going through this in real time. So this was a good reminder that whatever I'm doing next, whatever you're doing next, whatever you're doing now, maybe, if you're, if you're reflecting on that a bit, uh, uh, this quote was a great reminder for me. And I'm going to put it up here on my uh, in my work area. To believe in something and not live it is dishonest. So I'll leave you with that today. Thanks for listening. Uh, Really appreciate your presence here. I'll see you next time, next week. (laughs) Peace and love. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 